film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumpkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, contributors Jonah Desno and Sean Nopton, along with myself, will analyze the best of 2021. You'll then hear my review of the Peanut Butter Falcon, Sean Green's recommendation, and how film lists are important in viewership and curation. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Hi, Jonah. Hey, Eddie. Hey, Sean. Hey, Eddie. I'm just glad that we were able to just get a best of 2021 out of the way because that's something that I really wanted to do with the start of Real Print, but... It had to take us on today, February 2nd, to do it. And uh, we all, each of us, have uh, our own top 10 lists because the more the merrier, quicker, okay. The more the merrier and that we give you a lot of variety as well. And uh, like there's only one movie that's in all three of our top 10s and there are three movies that appear in two of the three lists. So I'll start off with mine where I don't do number ranking because it's very rare that I have one favorite movie. So I just have a group of favorites. And the my top 10 of 2021, that is, um, I'll say in alphabetical order, are Mia Hansen's Loves, Bergman Island, Kenneth Branagh's, Belfast, Mike Mills, Come On, Come On, Ari and Chuko Aziri's, Ian Mofei, This Is My Desire, Jonas Poirat's Lucy's Lee, Ephraim Azili's The Inheritance, Jane Campion's Power of the Dog, Robert Greene's Procession, Emma Seligman's Shiva Baby, and Raisuki Hagaguchi. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. What are yours, Jonah? So, list, Eddie. Oh, my list? Great list. Um, I'm going to start very similar to yours. It's not going to be really in a ranked order because I'm all for the subjective of cinema, especially when it comes to the best and your favorites. It's really all about what speaks to you. Um, so my order, or my list without any order, is The Power of the Dog, Nightmare Alley, The Worst Person in the World, The Green Knight, Come On, Come On, Titan. Zola, Annette, Drive My Car, and Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. All very different, but all something that I think can, and anyone can enjoy if you're up for a little weirdness, if you're, you're for something that goes against the mainstream just a little bit. Yeah, I think if we expanded this to 20, there'd be a lot more crossover between these yeah. three lists. Yeah. Um, as for my top 10, I, I have it ranked in front of me, so I guess I can go just 10 to 1. Um, and I had recently changed it because I think the list that you guys saw had M. Night Shyamalan's Old at 10, mm-hmm. which unfortunately got knocked off after I saw Lana Wachowski's Matrix Resurrections, oh. which got slotted in there. So I'll go down 10 to 1, um, starting with Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, Amora hosted as Bell. Uh, Ryusuke Hamaguchi's The Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, Lana Wachowski's The Matrix Resurrections, 
Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, Asgard for Hotties, A Hero, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, A Peach at Pong, We're Set to Cool's Memoria, and my top film of the year is Ruski Hamaguchi's Drive My Car. Excellent pronunciation on all those names. Thank you. Yes. Like, I still try my best to do um, as many of them. That I've said a peach of pong so many times in the last few months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, as all of ours have various lists, and we all live in different areas at different times these films release, so it's, don't be harsh if you can't see all those movies there, but we're all going to jump on Power of the Dog because that's the only movie that's on all three of us where the power of the dog, like I was in the hands of one, you're going to say a Western, you think, oh, there's going to be like a shootout or just how more of the characters of different environments trying to gain territory. The latter is in, in within like family, money and enterprise with um, Phil and the, Jesse Plum's character is trying to take over like um, Kirsten Dunst's like business, like with that marriage. And it was a little more of a family drama, more in my opinion than uh, Western, but I was impressed about masculinity was presented on screen where you could have some soft spots that you would not see in like the 30s or 60s or like even in the Visionist Western. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm normally not the biggest fan of the anti-Western, uh, just because even though they almost always look good, they are a little too slow for my taste, or it's really hard for me to connect with. Uh, I thought um, The Power of the Dog was the perfect anti-Western in that way, where even though some people are saying that it's a little too slow-paced, I think Campion packs every single scene with something nice to look at, something nice to soak onto. Um, it's just riveting throughout, um, just from like the story to just the characters' interactions with each other. I think there's really just something to sink your teeth into and just pick apart. And when a scene doesn't seem like it makes um, any sense to be in it, uh, 30 minutes later, you're gonna be like, oh, wow, that was the most important scene in the movie. And I didn't even know. So I think it's one that I really think that everyone everyone should give a chance because um, it's going to have a lot of awards hype throughout the year. So see it now if you haven't already. I, I totally agree with everything you guys are saying. I think the only thing I'll add is just sort of, it fits so snugly in like Campion's overall filmography too, just because she's had a history of sort of subverting these masculine genres, like within the cut sort of had a similar um, approach to the, the thriller genre um and in power of the dog yeah i was just it's remarkable how long she's able to sort of you know keep that kettle boiling and then you think it's gonna maybe blow like blow over to some sort of shootout at the end um or some sort of explosion either character based or physical but then it just kind of pulls the rug out from under you and it's uh something she does better than anyone else it's uh it's remarkable Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, like as we have a lot to go over, we'll go straight on to um, Come On, Come On, that's on Jonah's and my list. As with Come On, Come On, I was pulled away with Joaquin Phoenix's performance, like just getting to know other people around the country, but also 
figuring out the family life and the professional life and seeing the British Willie Norman in his debut as this American kid as I was just blown away by him where he really took great strings where like with most child actors you think oh it's just more of like a accompaniment but no he really was stealing many of the scenes especially when uh, Woody and Hakeem bark at each other outside that like it's not necessarily like I think it's a little funny in terms of how it's played out or how it was building up to the moment where he finds says fuck in the movie. It's like, damn, now I have to see that kid. Yeah, I uh I know Jonah, it's on your list, but I can I'll, I can talk a little about come on, come on too, which I also enjoyed. And like I said, if we expanded this a little bit more, I would have probably mentioned it on, on a list too. Um, but yeah, I think that just like watching come on come on it was really sort of there's like a humanist touch to it that mike mills imbues in all of his films that i really enjoy and it um in come on come on especially i think it's a little more reminiscent of like a hirokazu koreeda type kind of film where um something like a still walking or um it's just all these characters feel so three-dimensional and alive and yeah i mean i didn't know what norm was british until long after i saw it and i was i was shocked it really made me appreciate the film more and just on top of all those aspects it's just it's a film that makes you feel good it's just truly a feel-good film done in just such a beautiful way where it, the cinematography is impressive but when it really comes down to it like you said with the humanist approach to it it just makes you happy to be alive and like admire just kind of the absurdities of life and just how we diagnose our emotions, how we deal with other people's emotions. It gives you a lot to chew on and just come away with just with a grin on your face. And I think that Gabby Hoffman is probably one of the most underrated performances of the year. I know for the Kansas City Film Critics Circle, there was a little coalition to try to get her some more praise. And I really hope that pays out because I think she gets a fantastic performance in this film that's not getting a lot of notice. Mm -hmm. yeah gabby hoffman and also jesse buckley and the lost daughter were my two probably like most underrated supporting right. female performances yeah olivia coleman's great but jesse buckley for me steals the show on that movie. yeah for me and the lost star is dakota johnson that's another great one yeah green time partially but also just seeing oh like just trying to break mold of the like stereotypes that she or stigmas that she got from 50 shades of gray where like, yes, she can really act like she's not just a daughter of Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson. Like, yes, we know that she's great. Like, we don't have to just look at her past, just see the movie as it is. But The Lost Daughter, for me, like, a little bit with that movie, it's just, it was crazy. Like, over a doll? Like, what? Like, it's just that, look, I... That's what the doll represents. Aspects <laughs> of me, but over... A doll. <laughs> it's sometimes funny when, like, it sounds like comedy when <laughs> people argue over this. Oh, but no, like, Maggie Gyllenhaal made it to a drama, and, like, it had, a, I got a little mixed with Lost Star because of the doll childhood aspect, and uh, I wish people can learn instead of, like, stabbing each other. <laughs> but, yeah, let's go to um, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy that's on 
Sean Mines list where with Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, like, I enjoy seeing like the three movies to one. Like it, it almost felt maybe um like a humanistic non-science sci-fi version of the Twilight Zone, just more about different human connections and the story that got me into like within those three that are in the film was the very first one with Gumi, um, Kai, and Mako about that crazy love triangle where I literally had to rewind where, wait, what? What did I miss from just that drive? No, oh, damn. He was with with her, the, the, the love triangle, the betrayal. Damn, Raizuki. <laughs> Yeah, I had I had a similar reaction. I was just completely taken with each story and like very quickly. And uh, I was talking with someone after and it was just like we, we the thing that they said was like, it's just such a testament to what you can do with film with just a couple actors, a couple locations and just really good, really good dialogue, good writing. Um, and in particular, I think the second vignette was my favorite. Um, and I, I might butcher this name this time, but Kyuhiko uh, Shibu, Shibukawa, who was the professor of the second one, I thought that he was, I was, I, I thought it was hilarious, the second one, it's just like the monotone delivery of, of <laughs> everything, his reactions to her reading uh, his book, and just, it's a different side of Hamaguchi than you see in Drive My Car, and he, he plays both perfectly. Mm-hmm. I have not seen this one, so I'm really liking your guys' thoughts, and I'm excited to watch, but I have not had access to this one yet. Yeah, let's talk a little briefly on the third story, which is, um, like, ranking, which is, like, I really enjoy how it was arranged. Like, that was really a great one to, to quicker. That was really a great one to end because of the different um, emotions we have, a memory, and also the fantasy comes into that in the, the wheel where the wheel was the first one, the car, the second one was with on the fortune. Oh, he was lucky to, the professor was lucky to gain the prize and not to deal with this uh, honey trap from a former student's partner, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, yeah. really. I I think he really uh, is able to sort of tap into the playfulness of his sort of coincidence theme in the Wheel of Fortune. And, and, and he's able to sort of heighten the melodrama because of the like foundation he lays that they're all sort of coincidence-based. Um, and I, I saw it with a Q&A after with him at the New York Film Festival, luckily enough. And oh, wow. it, was, it was just great to hear him talk about it. And he was mentioning how... Um, Eric Romer and Douglas Sirk were just the biggest influences for him in this and I think it's really apparent and he does a great job. Today's review, The Peanut Butter Falcon. I first heard of The Peanut Butter Falcon, a dramedy, when it hit theaters at some point in 2019. I knew that the film was playing at Columbia's Rattack Cinema nearby when I was at Mizzou. I saw a picture in the group chat that I'm a part of where some group members attended the screening unplanned and wanted to share this meeting with the other members in a discussion. I then saw actor Shia LaBeouf 
and Zach Gottsagen at the Oscars presenting Best Live Action Short Film together. It was wholesome to see their chemistry and bromance outside of the film onto the ceremony, but the film never came across for me to see it as a must-watch as I have some judgmental feelings about Shia as an artist, even though he had a hell of a comeback year with Peanut Butter Falcon and Honey Boy. Finally, however, my past guest, Sean Green, encouraged me to see it, and I did that shit. For those who haven't seen it, it's about Zack, a wrestling fan with Down Syndrome, like his portrayer, Gott Sagan, that lives at an assisted living facility. One day, with the help of Bruce Dern, he escapes from the facility where he dreams of meeting his hero, the Saltwater Redneck, played by Thomas Hayden Church. Along the way, he befriends Tyler, a thief played by LaBeouf. They are both on the run from Zack's social worker, Eleanor, played by Dakota Johnson, and Tyler's rivals as Tyler has stole their crab cages and burned their gear. Here's my spoiler-free review. It's 3 out of 5 stars. I was surprised with the film's emotional impact. It has the feel-good and sad vibes of discovering one's place. I cried in moments if Zack would accomplish his goal or would be turned away during the journey. The acting is excellent as the supporting cast shows different modes of concern and outlooks on life towards Zack, whether legal, spiritual, or health. God Sagan has the traits of a leading star, which is being determined, witty, and questioning their environment. He makes us laugh, cry, and cherish. I hope he has more roles to come. I have to thank him for being shirtless as he gives non-slim dudes courage to show their upper body on camera during his escape, and this was not merely treated as a punchline just a non-slim dude living, without judgment. We see more of the sincere sides of LaBeouf when his character compromises his route and learns what it means to be a role model and a leader. Unfortunately, I have mainly seen LaBeouf incompetent with his roles in Transformers and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. In his comeback year with Honey Boy in this film, he embodies his experience from what he learned as a young adult actor and shares his lessons and life methods with his co-stars Noah Jupe in Honey Boy and God's Egan here in The Peanut Butter Falcon. My main critique is the first act. It's a little cliche. I've seen so many damn escapes before and it's hard to pull that off in a refreshing or innovative way in its first act. And I do find the weird how Eleanor travels to places where she finds people to have a clue on Zack, as I wish the film could explore how the hell she exactly knew where Zack would be at this part of Florida at one point. I just wish the film showed Dakota's research of where Zack could be and how he would be at this spot, and they then realized that's not what the film is about. It's not necessarily an investigative private detector story on Dakota's side. It's about building friendships along the way from abandoning one's past and redefining yourself after being told that you can't do X or not fitting the binaries of good or bad. It's also a film about masculinity, so 
you see a lot of guns, fights, and other manly shit. The film challenges the preconceived imagery of strong men and then breaks down Tyler's vulnerability where he reveals some things he has in common with Zack that hunt him for life. It's a road movie and a buddy comedy that makes us root for the protagonist and it's a film where we can feel grateful for what life has given us. And that's my take. Yeah, speaking of Hamaguchi, we're gonna do Drive My Car. I have not seen that one yet. I need a good three hours to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Drive My Car is just, um, I think it's just flat out incredible. Both it, it, it's interesting now thinking about it because I have actually just the last movie I just saw was Procession um, to catch up on, on your list, Teddy. And I think it's really interesting to think about film as just like a cathartic form of art and the way that both Robert Greene's documentary tackles that but also narratively in Drive My Car it's just a sort of slow snowballing effect and then by the end the emotions just boil over and come flooding out and it's paced so incredibly well even for three hours it, it doesn't feel as long at all. The dialogue's so sharp too. So when there are those scenes that are longer, you have absolutely no idea. It's like, oh, this was a 20 minute, like almost monologue of just someone speaking. Um, didn't realize it because it's so, everything just keeps you on a hook, um, especially early on um, with the husband and the wife relationship and their little game that they play. Um, anything to do with that, anything, ah, sorry. Um, one of a very impressive film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you spoke about the catharsis of film and uh, about reliving experiences as with Procession, where like, I am a little biased, of course, because you all know that Robert Greene was one of my professors at Mizzou, and I'm in Procession for 30 seconds as an extra, like, I can't... That's 30 seconds of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> but I can't ignore... Um, just how it turned out to be at the end because even though I was presenting some stuff in class never saw like a real cut until seeing it at Scat Savannah luckily in the theater before Netflix and just see um, the power of uh, reclaiming spaces after being um, traumatized and sexually abused in the Catholic Church from the six subjects, Joe, Dan, Ed, Mike, Michael, and Tom, and that they, they all learn about being together and how it does a little add, not just only in terms of the fiction, nonfiction line that Green blurs in his past films, but also adding like the themes of skepticism in terms of doing these objectives because like they everything that Green has done within this movie as he said in many interviews is that it could have been the last thing shot in the movie because like we don't want to be certain of where we're going and also um, giving the, the power and um, even agency of how this, the six on-screen participants um, that take 
how this movie will be. And uh, it's very emotional. It's definitely a movie that you're going to cry and that it's not the most easy film to watch, but it's very powerful and really provides a lot of healing as we see what we can do more moving on instead of just looking at the past and being defined by past events. Yeah, that was very well said. I think um, another thing that I loved about the movie is the sort of um, clear reverence it has for the the child actor that's brought in to sort of be that be there um, for all as like the surrogate for all the young versions of the men telling their stories. Um, and I just think it's just an unimaginably hard task that that kid has and it's it's great that the the film takes the time to appreciate him and also that he is up to the task. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tarek did a great job in being each version of them as it was, as you see in the movie, it was the six men's decision to actually cast him. It was not, some of it was not, some of the things you see in the movie is not Robert's or the producer's choices. Like going back to places that they've abused because like, you need to have a, a lot of courage for that and uh, that's not not most things that were in that movie are not easy to ask but with gaining the trust that Green and his producers Douglas, Susan and Ben have with um, their lawyers Rebecca Randalls and Susan Black they were able to gain that um like empathy and uh, compassion to just um, have the, the direction of making the movie. And some other films that I want to mention are that we didn't get to before we run out of time are Shiva Baby, where with that movie, I was just excited to see a movie where it was both funny and suspense because it's rare to see that in a movie. Like the, it was the first movie since Dr. Strangelove where it was both funny and suspense, where with other dark comedies like Fargo or even In Bruges and uh, um, Pink Flamingos, it would be like, ew, what the fuck, God damn, but not necessarily in terms of anxious, but more of like, shock value or scared but not suspense in my opinion which is how danielle goes through all the crazy people at the shiva that she does of a person she doesn't know mm -hmm. yeah i agree i think there's something that uh miss Seligman really taps into in the suspense of anxiety in that film that you don't really see in other sort of dark comedies like like Fargo and like Martin McDonough ones like uh in Bruges or Three Billboards those are it's a very different type of suspense mm -hmm. yeah and uh, then with um Flea um the movie Flea was just greatly animated greatly protective of Amin which is a pseudonym it's not his actual name and all the locations were changed in the film to protect Amin and uh, how animation was really the only way this can go. And uh, about telling one story about being a refugee from Afghanistan and getting all the way to where you are 
in Denmark and that with the, the combination of the editing of transition of animated um, like close up to archive footage of actual events, that was really powerful and uh, did a time shopping where and had many layers of these images, like the opening of the of a young, I mean, running. Oh, he's having fun. No, he's running away. And the ending where they cut from an animated grass to a live action shot of the grass really gives it a significant feeling. Oh, like that actually did happen. How it blurs the line between two dimension, three dimension, as well as just seeing a love story about continuing the romance that Amin has with his partner, Dads. And I really love how his family was safe and supportive when uh, Amin came out. And I thought, oh, you do worry because in most countries, just worry about families if they are not, but go have fun. We knew that you were little. And like, what did you see, Fleeshawn? I saw Flea, yeah, I thought it was really interesting um, that the way that it sort of, I, I really enjoyed the approach to the interview that it took where he, like, it, he had him lie down mm -hmm. and it was just sort of more like a, um, the director talked about too, this was another one I saw at the New York Film Festival where he was has a history in, in radio um, and he used some of those approaches to sort of um, get, I mean, to, settle down more and be able to tell his story, be more ready to share. Um, and I think, yeah, just the combination of the very compelling refugee story with the also compelling uh, love story between the gay romance that is pretty dicey and for him and his, his history, I, th I thought it was handled really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I'll just give some brief words with my remaining picks. Um, with Bergman Island in the Mia Hansen Loves um, English language debut, I believe, which is has Tim Roth and Vicky Crace about different where they don't even get to collaborate together, and it really does show how the relationships um, comes goes ups and downs, as well as um, Vicky Crace's character finding that voice through like the different retelling with Mia Wachowski and Anders Danielson Lee of uh, being like her imagination of this movie that she wants to have. And uh, like, it was a movie that I saw at SCAD where I should have saw, like that was a movie that you should not watch first thing in the morning. It's a little slow, but despite that, it was a beautiful movie about fine voice and also knowing, yeah, fuck your husband and, <laughs> <laughs> but I did enjoy, like, even though I haven't seen much Bergman movies, I feel like this is a movie that you don't have to be a Bergman fan to know because some of them are just explicit, like scenes from a marriage. And other ones are E.A. Mofe, This is My Desire, which is just a story about trying to uh, find a way to survive and live and uh, immigrant where to Nigerians try to travel to uh, Europe, but they do have to pay a cost to get 
to get to Europe. And uh, it was brilliantly well done about how they transitioned from the two characters where it was originally going to focus on the male character, but after um, Chuko and Ari read the Gina Davis um, gender studies, it's at the gender at Gina Davis Gender Institute of Media. Um, Chuko was ashamed about how he treated female carers and wanted to give justice to the woman in his life, which you see with Mofe, the main male, and Rosa. In The Inheritance from Ephraim Azili, it's a movie about find about Julian getting uh, a, grand, a house inherited from his dead grandma and raised a community and called the House of Ubuntu, where it's shot 16 millimeter and it has moments of humor in terms of like this, like arguments about how it should run, like who should be the first guest? Should we get a peaceful singing group or someone from a gun club? And it ties that that this it has that's a narrative story that you see. It also has a story of documentary flash archival footage of the liberation group move, which when move is often brought up, the other thing that'll come up is either the 1985 police bombing in West Philadelphia, David bomb like between 1600 houses in that particular black community in Philadelphia or 1978 police shootout, which like you don't get to know much of the positive contributions they did and also trying to have a, a alternative, uh, um, healthier living a life where you don't have to have technology and even seeing members and descendants of the group where this their versions of MOVE have been recently been released now because they have been recently released in from prison for crimes they didn't necessarily commit and that they're trying to get their own stories be told through um through this film as also it's based off of Asili's own experiences at the Black Marxist Collective and also has a lot of joy just a lot of fun chit chat and like and playful arguments like as there was just this one subplot which I don't mind where Julian's friends trying to like is he going to stay or, or leave and shows Julian's responsibilities but besides that subplot it's an amazing movie you should check it out on Criterion channel you Sean did you see it no that was one I, I really wanted to check out because um, I know I, it's on Criterion channel it's pretty accessible but I didn't get a chance to unfortunately um, Jonah? Um, no I haven't gotten to watch it either Okay. The way you described it sounds very interesting. Yeah, it is. And uh, I really, that's, I did explain all my top 10 films. Um, yeah, ex Sean, explain a little bit about, oh, Jonah, explain yours first. With Yeah. Um, typically for me, for, this is more subjective and what my favorite is and the best, but I always really like to watch a movie. Um, that is unlike anything I've ever seen before. It's always something that high that stands out to me, and I typically put it to the top of my list. 
Um, so for this year, we had a couple of options. A lot of people say Titan, but other than the obvious car sex stuff, I actually think that movie is a little bit more tame than people give it credit for um, because it really is more about the family drama with the metaphors and the pregnancy with the car baby. But besides that, I actually think that one's a little bit more tame. So um, this year, the ones that really stood out to me were Lewis Crocs' Annette, um, which is just the perfect parody of a rock opera. Um, every actor in it commits full force um, to the point where you're watching, you're like, is this supposed to be really bad? Like, do they know how they're delivering the lines? But if you've seen Holy Motors, um, you'll know that everything is done with a purpose. Um, the absurdity, the um, melodrama, everything just really comes together just to be this great celebration of, of entertainment. Um, and then the other one is um, Ruta Jude's Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, which is what I would say is a great alternative to um, Don't Look Up This Year for an end of the world satire. Um, it's a three-act structure, starts off with a hardcore porno, so be careful with who you watch it with, but it's of a teacher whose sex tape gets released. The first act is kind of her going about her day, the looks of judgment, and then we take a break in the middle of the film um, with probably the most prominent montage theory I've seen in a film in many, many, many years, um, which the second act is just all montage, it's all descriptions of words, and a lot of how Jude is kind of structuring his narrative and his themes just very blatant with just different definitions of words um, with meanings attached to it so he's talking about high capitalistic society and one talking about climate change and then talking about blowjobs in the next it's just structured to be very compelling and then all comes to a big third act no surprises there with the teacher facing other the parents of the school that are upset everyone is masked up throughout the film which is a funny touch um, and then it has a couple of different endings that I think anyone is going to watch it and really think, wow, would have never thought that's coming. So those would be my recommendations if someone wants to watch something off the beaten path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so I can go into mine too. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be brief as well. Um, I'll, I'll echo your praise of Bad Luck Bang or Looney Porn too, because I loved it as well. It just barely missed out of my top 10. Um, I think there's that second act, especially, yeah, there's something really like Eisensteinian about the way it, it uses montage and its definitions and its footage. Um, but as for the ones I'd like to point out more on my list, I mean, for Memoria, it's uh, a, a Peach Pong film. You are pretty much going to know what to expect. It's a different setting this time, so it's Columbia, but it's got that same sort of dreamy, ethereal feeling to it um and i don't want to spoil it for you guys but um it's got a pretty like gnarly conclusion as well and then steven spielberg's west side story was just euphoric for me pretty much i thought it was just incredible um i was really taken aback with all the, the pretty bold changes they made to the stories um beyond just the obvious sort of you know not casting white actors in brown face and <laughs> Uh, I thought that Rita Moreno's re-inclusion was, was pretty genius, the way they reincorporated into the story. Um, Mike Feist is, is a supporting actor, probably. That's my most underrated one. I really hope he gets in Oscar conversation more, maybe uh, for nomination day. And then next is uh, Asghar Farhadi's A Hero, which 
I am just a huge fan of the way that he writes his stories. He's such a good writer of drama and just these sort of building these webs that spiral out of control. And uh, I hear one in particular is more sort of heartbreaking than his other ones because it's got that sort of bicycle thieves uh, nature to it where it's this sort of nice guy just getting turned down and around every corner and you're rooting for him uh, but it's just it gets it gets tougher and tougher and you understand when he gets a little more aggressive and burnt out towards the end um, and then the last one I'll mention is Lana Wachowski's Matrix Resurrections which is my favorite probably big budget film of the year um, just the, the commentary it has about the state of blockbuster filmmaking while also being clearly so personal for her to return to these characters that she loves and also doubling down on the lore that people got way too much of in the sequels. Um, I thought that it was just such a, a original and um, fascinating, entertaining, just all those superlatives you can add to it. I, I love that film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is definitely like, I, only seen West Side Story out of the ones that you've had, but like I just really had to rewatch it because it was too late at night for me. And like I need to see the Jerome Robbins and Robert Weiss version first too, just to see the difference mm-hmm. like outside of like the casting choices. And like I hope um ariana debose gets nominated for i think she actress and like i know that it's going to get nominated as well as proud dog and with belfast the ones i forgot i mentioned just about looking at childhood and seeing how beautiful black and white brana did with that projector which is an inspiration of on the podcast cover and but also, I didn't expect that many black and white movies this year, which we could talk about another day. And there's just so much, but we don't have much to have. But thank you both, John and Jonah, for discussing this. And have a good day. Awesome. Thanks for, oh. <laughs> Thanks for having us, Eddie. Thank you, Eddie. It's great to talk. Bye. Today's concluding thought lists, best of lists, top 10 of the year, best 50 of the decade, or even the greatest of all time are all subjective. We all have to classify films that make an overall film going experience. There is no right or wrong option. They all have intuitive feelings that have standout elements that make us emotionally attached to them. The writer's intended audience defines every list, whether the audience is conventional viewers of the high streamed or grossing film, viewers who do not see many international movies and documentaries, or an art house moviegoer who witnesses the expansions or new possibilities within the medium. There will always be snubs that do not get to be on multiple top Rotten Tomatoes verified critics top 10. With the repetitive nature of film lists, I became aware that there are films under people's radar and I did whatever possible to have it in the conversation. I did whatever I could to prevent creating an echo chamber of what is in the main discussion of best films 
with the curation for multiple audiences. I did my best to overlap the mainstream American independent film audience and international audiences by highlighting films that have played or premiered at huge festivals outside of North America and including three top ten lists with minimal similarities. This is not a perfect list. Three of my options have been recommendations for my friends and family and not necessarily the best of quality of films in 2021 in my perspective. However, the list is not defined by what's on it but what's left out. I have some blind spots that have prevented me from seeing many international films and other obscure films that I do not have the physical access or selected interests of genres and actors where I prioritize more over others. This makes me want to give a shout out to my honorable mentions of 2021 that I didn't get to talk earlier in the episode. The Velvet Underground, Summer of Soul, Spider-Man No Way Home, and Dune. These four flicks expanded new insights into exploring one's memory and gave me a different interpretation of an event or character's journey through the film's edits. All four of them are some of the best edited films of 2021. I'm aware that I can receive blowback for saying X is better than X. There are possible inadequate constructive measurements that I have for reviewing films. If that makes me want to explain the final question to wrap each guest interview. The purpose of the recommendation question that I have with each guest is to discover and add films that I might have ignored to my watch list and to see if two people can agree on each aspect of the film. I know that every person does not interpret one movie the same, and I'm aware that the guest may have tremendous enthusiasm in describing their pick, and I might have less of that in my review. Even if the guest brings up a movie that I already have seen, it shows that depending on the guest being approximate to my age, or being raised in the Midwest like me, we have that same passion for films that are not visible in our circles. If I didn't see their pick, it drives me to see what I have been missing out on. I hope you, the listener, can contact me a recommendation that I haven't watched, whether it's a newly restored Janus film or an adaptation of a best-selling novel. And that's today's concluding thought. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, courtesy of Kama, Like Clockwork by Benjamin Kling, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.